Hello, I'm Bonnie Langford, and this is The Sirens of Audio. Coming up in this episode, our featured guest is regular Big Finish guest actor Tim Bentink, also known for his long-running role in The Archers. We'll also be talking about the recent controversy Philippa stirred up online for giving, get this, a positive review. Our rabbit hole topic is going to be live and interactive with the audience of our May Sophie Aldred event in Sydney, and we'll be recommending a recent Big Finish release and a music album that we're inspired to listen to again as a result of yet another recent Big Finish release. Hold on to your socks and hose and pull, you're in for an awesome show. G'day audiophiles, this is the Sirens of Audio, the show that explores the universe of Doctor Who on audio. My name's Dwayne. And my name's Philip. G'day Dwayne, g'day audiophiles. G'day Philip. Uh, before we started recording, you're in a bit of a silly mood. Are you, are you still silly? What can we What can we expect from you today? Well, I don't know, maybe I should be more sensible now, but yes, I no, just don't No, don't do that. I'll tell you one thing though, you have been causing a bit of a stir on various uh, Big Finish groups. Uh, we've, we've, we've talked, one, we've talked recently about, well, it's interesting because we, we've been talking about reviews and how they might affect a person's listening experience and your review of Dalek's Genesis of Terror, mm. the big Finnish lost story production is, uh, is, is quite, it's quite a polarizing release. It seems to, some people hate it and some people have gone, oh, oh, I think I might enjoy that if you put it that way. So some people seem to be being swayed by your Opinions, which, of course, as we all know, they're always right, Philip. Well, always. But can I say, the background to that is the fact that I wasn't planning to review it at all. It was just that someone put up a poll of the worst Big Finish stories ever, naming that as number one. And so that sort of bothered me in terms of, you know, I don't like this anyway. And <laughs> we all know Necromantia is the worst one ever. Um, there's nothing like that. That, that will never get uh, beaten. That will never get spot. beaten. Yes. So, so if anyone does like Liquid Tea, I'm sorry, but I don't think you really do because it's just, yeah. Anyhow, we, 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 some stage we might talk about Liquid Tea, but it's just, you know me, I don't like being negative, but for that one, is this sort of, uh, anyhow. Um, yeah, so that one came up. Yeah, this person is doing the, the most hated big finishes. So the whole concept of the question I didn't like, you know, people just coming up with what they, didn't like because I'm all about being positive. Yes. And so I simply added a comment to this one in terms of, and also I think in the top 10 was the Pirates. And so to me, that just showed, okay, well, if, if you think the, top, the Pirates is one of the top 10 of the worst big finishes of all time, then you obviously have no idea what you're talking about. And I just gave a bit of a defense for what's it called? Genesis. No, Dalek's terror. Genesis, Dalek's of terror. Genesis of Terror. So I just gave a bit of a defense for it. And in the process of writing the comment, it got longer than I expected. So I ended up just copying and pasting it as a bit of a review. And basically, what I, all I was trying to say to people, because not, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's the best thing that Big Fitness have ever produced, not even close to it. But if you understand what it is good for, it serves its purpose really well. 
which is it's not it's not a big finished story. It's only it's it's what they have that Terry Nation had originally in terms of his first draft of what became the Genesis of the Daleks. And for someone like me, and no doubt lots of people, our listeners, I bought the LP of Genesis of the Daleks and I listened to it for hundreds of times. I basically wore that poor record flat. And so I know every line, every bit of dialogue, and most of the first episode is actually on that record. There's a good 15, 20 minutes of that first episode there. So being able to compare that to what Terry Nation originally wrote was really fascinating. And as I said, it's got narration, but it's not narration, it's stage directions. And so Nicholas Briggs reads all the stage directions, and I, and I really like how he reads the stage directions in a very, I don't say monotone, monotone is the wrong word, but in a unemotional voice, just these are the facts. This is what happened this, this is what happened here. Um, and even you know, from Sarah's point of view, um, slowly turned. And so all the stage directions for that first episode are all there with the dialogue being you know, wonderfully played. So all I was doing was sort of saying, being able to compare that first episode to what I have in my head all the time with that record was a fascinating thing to compare one to the other, where changes were made. I do think Genesis of the Daleks, Robert Holmes, I think he improved the dialogue. And I think yeah, everything that he's done is, is actually better. But then he, with yeah. the breakdown of every episode, just done, and that's only done as stage directions. It's, it's just the summary breaks, points done by different actors who are in the cast. I think as a as a work of behind the scenes DVD commentary extra, it's a beautiful piece of work. But that being said, if you're expecting a proper big finished story, you're going to be disappointed. So I'm just yeah. trying to warn people, go in with the right expectation. And I think if you do that, you'll learn and enjoy it. But if you don't, you're going to be stuffed. I was surprised at how many people were expressing their annoyance that this was advertised as a lost story and um, it's not like the other lost stories and I feel ripped off. And it got me confused because right from the day it was announced that it was coming out, Big Finish have always said exactly what it was going to be right from day one. I remember I got the press release. I, I, I read the thing and was curious about it. And so it's never been a secret that this is what it was, but people were expressing their annoyance that this was suddenly like, like uh, uh, they were gazumped by it. Uh, like yeah. it was a like it was a surprise, like it was, you know, something Big Finish had gone out of their way to rip people off with, which was you know annoying. They'd never, they had never, um, ever said that this was going to be a lost story like all the others. No, I I agree. I I'd read the press release. I read the Big Finish articles. Vortex talked about it. It was on the Big Finish um, podcast. Everyone I think had explained what it was, but I do understand that some people had missed that. I do think the cover isn't helpful because it's a stunning cover. I love the cover. But it's the a cover, great cover, yeah. It's a great cover, but the cover really doesn't signify the fact it is only one episode, one half an hour episode. Yes. Maybe for people who just hadn't – I can understand people might have missed it. Um, yep. And so I, I do feel sorry if people you know, did miss it and were surprised, therefore, by it. So that's part of the reason why I did the review was to warn people, if you're going to get it, just know what you're getting. And if you, yep. if you like that sort of DVD extra sort of stuff, you're going to love this. If you don't care about those DVD extra sort of stuff, it's going to be a waste of money for you. 
So that mm. that was the point. But yeah, it, it it has caused a bit of a stir, and I do wish they were paying me for my reviews. That would be nice. I was going to say that. Did you made sure you passed on your bank account details for Big Finish? To well, apparently, that apparently a couple of people in. assume a couple of people assume I'm being paid for it, which is lovely. More than a couple. Some some some, <laughs> some people thought I must be Nick Briggs, who's actually just done it himself. So if <laughs> if I can actually write as well as Nick Briggs, I'd be happy with that too. So <laughs> a few things happening there that I'm, yeah, really happy about. Um. Yeah, it, it, it hasn't got too ugly um, because, you know, certainly one of the things that I appreciate about most of the people who listen to the science of audio is I think most most people who listen to us have a positive attitude towards the show and we can talk respectfully and disagree. And I think yeah. that's that's OK. And I think it hasn't got totally beyond the respectful. I've been watching it nervously, wondering if it's going to move beyond the point. But yeah, at the moment, I think yeah, I think people could sometimes express themselves a bit more. I disagree with you in a nice way, as opposed to who's paying you. But that's okay. I can live with that. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, so we've got a great show lined up. This episode, we're going to be speaking with the incredibly talented Timothy Bentick, who's a guest starred in many, many Big Finish episodes. But normally, you and I just take a trip down the rabbit hole, Philip. But uh, as a bit of a change. We recorded a rabbit hole topic at our Sophie Aldred event recently, with the audience taking part in that. Unfortunately, the audio didn't work out as planned. I do have an audio version which I'll attempt to clean up. It's not going to be as good as it normally is, uh, but I would like to share that with you now. One of the um, features of our podcast is what we like to call a rabbit hole topic. And so it worked well last time when we were up here and we got some interaction from the audience. So we want to do that again. So let's jump down the rabbit hole. Today, Phil, and for everyone here, is I mentioned the music of Murray Gold before, so I'm not going to stick purely to audio, but more to history today, because I'm interested in the music side of things. Now, when Sophie was uh, in the series, there were different composers coming in for the various serials. Uh, what do you prefer, Phil? Do you prefer the consistency of someone like Murray Gold, or do you like the, the different variety of different composers coming in? Um, uh, I Okay, I'm a huge Murray Gold fan, uh, and a lot of people wink about him showing too much emotion, but the job of a good musician is always to give emotion, I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I actually, I think because Murray Gold is so good, I'd actually prefer him to the changing, oh, I don't know, there's good stuff in the past too. There's, an awful, there's some really awful music though, isn't there? There's a few TV shows that just literally cringe at how awful the music is. Um, I mean, Dudley Simpson was an amazing composer, and some of his shows are spectacular, and others just go, oh, yeah, he didn't be bothered that time. Um, so Dudley Simpson was probably the, the previous classic one. I, you know what, I don't care. You don't care? I don't care. I love it all. Yeah, I can I just give a shout out to Sigan Akinola too, because I've loved his music over the last few years too, it's been different, very different to my goal, and I like it. So what do you think, members of the audience, what do you prefer? Do you prefer the consistency of a composer throughout a series, or do you like to chop and change? Uh, just, just stick your hand up and we'll bring a microphone to you. Just hold the microphone. No hand over the microphone, that's my rule. Hey, well, I'll have to go with uh, which one of you said a mixture 
Well, my goal is very good, but it would be interesting to see a, very, a variety of famous composers, what, what their view on Doctor Who is, plus it keeps things fresh. Yeah, good point, Tim. Thank you. I think you can have a happy medium. You can change composers every season rather than every story. So that way you get a consistent feel for a season since also you see you doing season-long arcs and what have you. So you have to so, so you like the consistency but you also like to mix it up a bit. Yeah, because, yeah, Mario Gold has done some good stuff but I kind of died a little when they didn't come back. But, you know, <laughs> it's just everything from the first arc you've done. Same Doctor, same all that, and they wouldn't not just add a new name to add yeah. Um, Murray's good, but the problem I think for Murray is that it's all the same. It's all lush, orchestrated. It doesn't, it really occasionally doesn't, well, less, less, less is better. I think it's just too much. Whereas the latest, there's a lot less music, a lot more silence, and silence can be as equally as important to a program as music. Music can end up being, I can't hear what the dialogue's saying, or I miss that, or it's too telegraphed, you know? Oh, this is important because music story is totally as important. I much prefer to make in that position rather than the uh, musicians. Yep. This, I always think that um, the difference between Murray Gold and Seagan Akinola is that Seagan is more atmospheric uh, when he does his musical scores, whereas Murray is more melodic. So, anyone else have a break? Have a good runner there. Hey, there you go. Yeah, no, my, my comment really on the music was that I thought that the uh, chopping and changing worked better for the classic series because, you know, Monster of the Week kind of thing, it was different every time, whereas a consistent um, composer for the new series works better simply because of, you know, overarching stories and all that kind of thing. That's always been my feeling. About it. Like I, I like the fact that Sylvester McCoy had multiple different um, music composers and David Tennant had one. <laughs> oh, that's well, I would like uh, perhaps a guest composer coming in and then Murray Gold is very good, pretty bombastic. I doubt I can't understand the dialogue. Uh, it's supposed to be incidental music, not the music score to Doctor Who, where I just can't understand what's being said on the screen. So maybe Harry Gold has got a charisma, perhaps lower it a little bit, and then just reduce the music a little bit. Okay, just two, we're talking two more, so one near one over there. Yeah, so, um, about what you were saying about the whole music and everything like that, is that I do love Mario Gold. Like, Mario Gold, I would definitely put my top five favorite composers. So he, I really do love his music. It's very, like, uplifting. It's, you know, he has some difference, he has these side ones, he has these big triumphant ones, and you're like, yeah, kind of thing. But I do, I don't mind change, I, I don't, um, especially with music, because you can, you can pinpoint some good ones, anyway, good instruments. The point is, though, I feel like Sigurd's one, like, he was good, like, don't get me wrong, he was good. Just, I didn't really have that feeling that I had with Mario Gold's music. He, he had some occasional good ones, but it just, I don't know, I just like, didn't have that, like, you know, connection like, with the music as much as I did with Mario Gold. But, as I said, 
I'm happy for change, like, you know, you know, some interesting new music for whatever the city is, but I feel like Seagons was just a bit of a hit and miss for me. Great, thanks. Um, I think it sort of depends on the format of the show. So like the classic series with serials and it was sort of like mini seasons. Um, and I think like the new show is a bit more of like a single arc in the way it's structured. Um, so I think it sort of depends on that. But yeah, I definitely love like season four of, of like Marigold's composing. And I think if any of the later seasons with like Max and Sarah, it is going more on they had a lot more money to spend on the music, so they are able to go a lot bigger. So it'll be interesting to see what the music sounds like now with like, the new Disney Plus money. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, uh, everyone, for your comments. Make sure you do subscribe to the podcast because your comments are going to appear on a podcast, a podcast very soon. Can I say how good the Doctor Who fans can actually talk constructively without begging something out? Because often we have a reputation for just attacking, and that was actually really positive and constructive. It was obvious that people disagreed, but we didn't even attack anyone. So well done, everyone. What an exciting room to be. Give yourself a no one has an opinion stronger than Doctor Who fans, um, but learning how to express them in ways that can construct and help them. Well done. All right, so it was great to hear from our audience at uh, the recent Sirens of Audio event. Stay tuned. There are more announcements. If this comes out and there has been an announcement, that could have happened too, Philip. We, uh, sometimes Maybe, I hope so. Get a bit out of out of timing with our, with our releases. But, um, yeah, the topic was interesting on the subject of music. Timothy Bentick is actually a musician too, so that'll be interesting to talk with him about. But before we bring Timothy on, let's play a trailer for the latest Big Finish release that he's been in, and that is Space 1999, Dragon's Domain. From Big Finish Productions, Space 1999, Dragon's Domain. Alpha, if you can hear me, this is crazy, but I think I've been caught in some sort of thunderstorm in space. It's dead ahead of us. Looks like... Like it's been sliced out of rock. That's definitely the thing that docked with Ultra. And the dragon's in there. Boy, Alan, let's not jump to any conclusions. What the hell are they? They don't look like missiles. Open fire. Computer's giving me a strange reading in local space. Can't put my finger on what it is. Kills, devours. We don't know why or how, but the people of that planet cut it out of the ground and ejected it into space to get rid of it. A word I translated on that map, identifying the line you crossed on your test flight in Ultra. What's the word? As near as I can translate it. Dragon. Big finish for the love of stories. Well, it's my great pleasure to welcome regular Big Finish contributor and long-serving star of radio drama The Archers, Tim Bentick. Welcome. Hello. Hello. Hi. I should say good day, as I am a, 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 a Tasmanian born, um, but haven't used that in anger since, uh, well, 70 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to ask you about that first because, the, I, I mean, 
I was very excited to to see that you were in fact born about 50 kilometers from where I am sitting right now no. in Tasmania. Are so, you in Camelton? Uh, I'm I'm just north of Launceston, so oh, okay. not not too far from Campbelltown. Okay. So so tell us the story behind your being born in Tasmania. Okay. Well, after the war, um, my father, who had a habit of putting his money where his mouth was, um, figured that there would probably be nuclear war uh, with Russia, and he worked out that the last place on the planet to get the fallout from a nuclear conflict. Uh, was Tasmania. Um, so, which apparently, if you do that now, it is, you know, you're the safe, you're in the safest place in the world if it comes to nuclear war. So he answered a call for a jackaroo. So jackaroo wanted for Tasmanian sheep station. Um, and he answered the call and he got the job. Now, what his plan was, was to go out there and work for, as a jackaroo for a bit and then to look around and buy somewhere to buy a, you know, a sheep, a sheep station, essentially, or a farm, be a farmer in Tassie. Um, and with my mother's uh, parents' money, because my father was a kind of a flighty aristocrat with, um, with you know, he had a, a title, but he hadn't got any money. And mum's family was, uh, they were kind of working class, then middle class, uh, new money from Sheffield, though, Yorkshire. And uh, they had a bit of brass. Um, and they <laughs> they decided that they were going to write out a marriage settlement which was a legally signed document, which my father didn't read. Uh, and it was only when he got to Tasmania, he discovered that this marriage settlement, which would allow him to buy property um, with my mum's money, um, only allowed him to buy property within the United Kingdom. He hadn't read that bit, because that's typical for my father. So he got to Tassie, and there he was, a jackaroo and a Tasmanian sheep station, <laughs> Count Henry Bentinck. <laughs> Um, and he'd taken everything. He'd taken all the, you know, the family stuff, the furniture, uh, a few paintings, you know, everything, and two daughters with him. And we'd landed in, in on a on a sheep station called Barton, which is um, just a, like twenty miles north of Campbelltown. Um, and he lived there. They lived there for something like I think three three or four years. Uh, in meantime, I was born. Uh, in 1953 and so um that's why I've, I've now got dual nationality and you know if i'd stayed there i'd be i'd be speaking the same way as you mate you know but and i'd be supporting a different rugby team <laughs> but i'm not um and i am terribly good um although a 50 percent yorkshire so i'm a bit of a mongrel um and then yeah i think i never really kind of worked i think my mum just got bored um, there she was, you know, in the middle of nowhere. We just sheep for company, um, and and my father was was he, he loved talking, he loved writing, he and uh, and again just the lack of people to talk to. Um, I think that was really the the main reason for them for them coming back. But they were ten pound poms, you know, in the first place. They were on SS Chitral. Um, and weirdly, I've just, you know, just been doing a bit of work on, there's a television series called 10 Pound Poms. I don't know if you've, you've got it there yet. Have you? We do, yes. Yeah. My, my parents um, were 10 Pound Poms too, so I watched Oh, really? The show. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's that's essentially the, the story. of. And, and the nice thing is, because I've got dual nationality, both my boys have got, um, have got dual nationality as well, and they've both used it. Uh, both boys have been out to, to Aussie. Um, and uh, one one travelling and one doing a bit of work there. And have you had a chance to get back to to Tassie to yeah. see the place where you were born? I did. 
Um, many years ago, when I was probably in my late 40s, I think, um, I did a commercial for the Australian Tourist Board, which involved us for about four weeks. I mean, it was the best job in the world. We were traveling, we just flown all the way around Australia. We were filmed in front of every single photogenic part of Australia that you can imagine. We did something like 26 flights all around the place. Um, and it was shown on TV and on film. And it was, you know, it was one of those nice, nice jobs. We got, I got paid well. And then at the end of it, I said, um, right, I'm, I'm going, you know, we, we were in Sydney. So I just got a flight to, to Launceston. And um, and it was very, very emotional. I remember as as the plane came into land, um, I was uh, you know looking out the window. I was I was in bits. I was pathetic. I was just blubbing away because my mum my mum died when I was thirteen. She took her own life when I was thirteen. So for me, the you know it was mum. I was kind of coming back to in a way to, you know to her and the memories. We've got these photographs. We've got a lot of black and white photographs of of um, of Barton and of her and of me being a baby and all that kind of thing and there i was suddenly you know this place that for me in my memory was the just these black and white photographs and stories from my sisters and from my parents um that it could have just as easily been you know the moon it was so far away so to come there was enormously emotional and so and i landed there and i hired a car and i drove to up um to the northeast around the top and then came down um down to to hobart and uh, sorry to no down to to um, Lord, to, to campbelltown and it was a funny story was i walked i found the the hospital where i was born in campbelltown campbelltown hospital and i walked in there and uh, walked up to the desk and the woman looked up and she said oh are you tim benting <laughs> I thought, man, I made an impression, you know, <laughs> so, all those years ago, it made such an impression that you, rem that you remember that. Um, anyway, it turned out that she was the wife of the person that I'd arranged to, to go and stay with, who uh, um, they were the re related to the people who'd lived um, at, at the farm at Barton. So I'd made arrangements to go and stay with them. So, But I, I didn't know that. So I was sort of surprised. And I said... <clears throat> I said, you know, can you talk, show me the place, you know, whereabouts I was actually born? And she looked out the window and she said, you see that red Datsun over there? You'd have been born just about underneath that. <laughs> that's, that's the old maternity ward. Um, and I got my birth certificate, which I'd never had. I'd, I'd never known, you know, the time of day that I was born. I'd never had a birth certificate. So I got that. Um, and so that was lovely. And then later, um, just like, I don't know, about eight years ago, um, I got we I got this gig of of writing travel pieces for the Mail on Sunday, and we've Judy and I, my wife and I, have had these fantastic trips all around the world, um, where they pay for you, you know, and it's first class everything, and in, in return you get to you you write an article for the for the paper, and it's, it's such a bugger because guy <laughs> who's the editor he got the sack a couple of years ago, so that's the end of that gig, but that was a great gig, that was fantastic, and we flew literally first class. Uh, into Hobart and then we you know we hired a car and then we drove all the way around Tassie we went north up to Launceston and then we went into the um the, into the impenetrable scrub in the west and and and, and drove down there which was uh, I mean probably the most peaceful and beautiful place uh we have ever been in our lives absolutely I mean I talk about falling in love with the place that you were born in and also because of this gig not just being a tourist but actually getting to really really see the island um, and to meet the people who I was blown over by 
um, you know, you kind of sort of have a feel of a, a kind of an image of Tasmania as being a little bit backwards, a little bit kind of, you know, behind a little bit, bit insular. But no, I mean, these are, the, you know, the most charming, well-educated, funny, and the food was just to die for. The wine was to die for. I was blown away. And we really seriously think thinking maybe we made a mistake when we came back here. <laughs> maybe we should have stayed. And, you know, should we should we do what my dad did and go out there and go out there and stay? So I love it. I love it. You wrote a fantastic article um, for the mail on that called Return of the Laddie from Tassie. I'll put a link for that in the show notes mm. because I really enjoyed reading that. Yeah. And you mentioned when you're in Campbelltown, you ate the best hamburger you've ever had at a place called Zepps, which is a place I always try and stop whenever I'm passing through because I think they do some of the best food, great pizzas, and they've got the best chips ever. Absolutely true. I remember it to this day. I remember going, this is the best hamburger I have ever eaten, and it's not been beaten since. <laughs> Can I just ask, what was what was the commercial you were making? Because about who was the commercial for? Which is Australia? It was for the Australian Tourist Board. Oh, um, which country? For us what, to show? To, to be, shown, be shown? I think, prop, um, well, it was, it was it was shown here. It was shown in the UK. But whether or not it was shown um, anywhere else, I, I can't tell you. I don't know. They were in a land that time had forgotten. I wish Paul could have seen this. Beautiful. A place like nowhere on earth. Cape Edmund West, about 600 k's, I guess. Got plenty of water? Yeah. What they saw, they would remember for the rest of their lives. And nothing would ever be the same again. <laughs> but time would always be against them. Only four more days. I just don't want to go back. The Australian Tourist Commission, in association with Qantas Airways, present Australia. It has to be seen to be believed. Now showing. What, what year was this? I, I, I really think I know the commercial. <laughs> It would have been something like it would have been in the late nineties. I'll find out. I'll find. I'll find out for you. Um, yeah, sort of, sort of late nineties, some, sometime like that. And it was just. It was me and and a girl, and it was just us being filmed doing the, all the lovely things that you can do in Australia. So, and it was. It would have been. I mean, they filmed and filmed and filmed. I mean, you could have made a, a, a movie out of it. But the nature of the beast is because it was a commercial. You know, it had to be cut down to, like the, the most on in the in the cinemas. It was like a minute. Um, and on the TV, it was probably just a 30 or 15 seconder, you know. So all of that stuff went out the window. But we had the, we had a great adventure. And was my first my first ever experience of um, of having Christmas in the sun, you know, lying by the pool with the dingle bells going is for us completely weird. It's <laughs> so weird. <laughs> it will be. Yeah. Now, if anyone was to do a Wikipedia search for your name, your full name would come up, and that is Timothy Charles Robert Noel Bentick, 12th Earl of Portland, Count Bentick. What's the story behind that? Uh, okay, so briefly, um, 
1689 was the glorious revolution when William and Mary, William of Orange, uh, basically invaded Britain um, and took over the crown. And his right-hand man was a guy called Hans Willem Bentinck. Um, and when um, the Dutch courtiers were with the king um, and they were seen by the British as invaders, they were all given um, English titles. And so Hans Willem was created the first Earl of Portland, which was a title that had, had died out. And there were a number of other Dutchmen who who, who were given English titles. Um, and his son, uh, the second Earl of Portland, was created uh, Duke. And the first, so the first, he was the second Earl, first Duke. This is slightly complicated. Bear with me. Um, so th that goes all the way down. Um, and they marry into rich families and become Cavendish Bentinck, and then they come, become Cavendish Bentinck Scott. Um, and it ends up with the last Duke of Portland living at Welbeck Abbey um, with estates in Scotland. Um, and he, his son died, tragically, and uh, so the title died out. So then that title went all the way back from there, back, 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 all the way up to the first Duke. And there's no, there were no parallels, there were no cousins that could inherit it and it went to go all the way back past the dukedom back to the first earl and then the first earl had got a second marriage he married twice so we go to the, his second marriage and then you come down to the counts bentinck count bentinck uh and that's us and so my father inherited the title of earl of portland from his something like kind of ninth cousin um but without any kind of, you know, money or estate or anything. It was just the title. But it was a seat in the House of Lords. And the reason why my father, because he had to prove it, it took him two years to prove this whole thing, lawyers and everything, and it was expensive, but he wanted to because he was a great environmentalist and that was his passion. And he foresaw what we're all looking at now, global warming and pollution and uh, the lot, all of it. Uh, he was a great environmentalist. Um and he wanted a political platform, really, for for his his ideas. He wasn't the kind of person who was going to, you know, work his way up through local council meetings and become an MP. I mean, it just wasn't his back. But he had this opportunity to do something, um, and he took it. And so he ended up in the House of Lords. And you can you can see it. You can see his speech. It was his his maiden and only speech because sadly he got cancer quite um, shortly after that and died. Um, but it's on YouTube if you just Google Earl of Portland Maiden Speech, and you can see him telling the House of Lords. Of course, typically there are only about four people in <laughs> um, uh, that they should, you know, keep. That what he said was that up until now, uh, mankind, um, that evolution has happened for the benefit of um, that we we have, we have evolved for the benefit of mankind and what that is doing is it's doing in the planet and what we should do now is to evolve on purpose for the benefit of the planet and put the planet's needs before ours um, which is a very idealistic and lovely um, idea but in the face of you know the onslaught of capitalism <laughs> it is idealistic and um, that hasn't happened. So how should we perceive our unprecedented predicament. Humanity, in common with all life, as we know, obeys a survival instinct. Everything we do is motivated by that instinct. We invented the stone axe and then civilization so as to pursue the best interests of ourselves and our progeny. And it worked. It worked so well that it's upsetting the balance of nature upon which everything depends for survival. 
Thus, a civilization doesn't any longer serve our best interests. It threatens them. And yet we are conditioned to perceive that civilization as normality. To have to perceive normality as wrong because it threatens our survival is what makes it so difficult for us to think how to respond to the present situation. And so all we do, for the most part, is to try to titivate our deadly civilization, hoping to keep it going more or less as it is. And this is not, as we know, strictly speaking, a political issue. Since it threatens us and the civilization we have, have evolved, it is in fact an evolutionary issue, an unprecedented issue, the crux criticorum of our civilization. So how do we face up to it? We know that if we continue to put our best interests in front of those of our environment, we will wreck that environment and kill most of our descendants. If, however, we choose to put the needs of that environment just a little bit in front of our own, not only will it survive, and therefore us too, but we will also have established a new basis for evaluating our way of life. A new basis for thinking out how to do the things that we know have to be done. We will have started to develop new aims, new values, and a new normality, because for the first time, we will have started to use our minds to choose to evolve on purpose. And also he did a speech in, in Trafalgar Square to the to words to the same effect. And he said, I put my faith in the young. You know, I think I, that our, our generation are too old to do anything about this, but they, I, I, I have great confidence in the young, um, which was, you know, quite right, but misplaced because now you've got Greta Thunberg thinking that she's the first one to come up with it. And, you know, I'm listening to her going, you're saying exactly the same thing as my dad said. Um, and you think you're the first one here. And this is going to go on, you know, this is that, that, that self-interest will prevail over the, the, the benefit to the planet. So that's how he ended up um, as the uh, uh, 11th Earl of Portland. And then he died. And I inherited um, a seat in the House of Lords. <laughs> But I knew that I was going to be thrown out because it was the Blair government and they'd said that they were going to get rid of most of the hereditaries. And so I knew that I wasn't going to be there for very long. So um, and I'm an actor, you know, and and um, it, acting is a pretty left wing profession. And I don't really believe that in the idea that an accident of birth should be, allow you to tell other people what to do. Um, and also and I didn't want to put my head above the parapet and having people take think that I was, you know, <laughs> I was a rich guy. I lived in the country of the Rolls Royce and a you know estate. Because you say the Earl of Portland, that's what people have preconceptions about, you know. And I get it. You know, I'd think that the same thing. And then they'd think that I wasn't a proper actor, and I am. You know, I've done drama school, done theatre, done everything, all of that. And I'm and I need it. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, that's how I, I've made. I've, that's how I've made a crust to feed the family, and I haven't got a, you know, wealth or anything like that. So I was wary and worried about preconceptions. Um, uh, but I've had to live with that without a seat in the house. So I was there for, you know, I had two and a half years I was there and I went, I did go and I, I, I observed, you know, as an actor to see what it was like to, to, to educate myself. And it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Um, and then, so for the last 23 years, I've had to live with, you know, thank God, my mates taking the piss. And as long as my mates take the piss, 
a lesson learned actually funnily enough when i was in oz when um when we'd finished doing this 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 um this this shoot and we had a kind of an end of shoot party and everyone got very pissed and um <laughs> one of the sparks sitting next to me says to me says so i hear your lord how do you know that because i been trying to keep it quiet and it turned out that the producer was a friend of my sister-in-law and she told her and she told the whole crew and I and I wondered why because you know I'm a good company member I get on with people I'd wonder why everyone was a bit off with me I was thinking why you know you're not being very friendly I wasn't being asked out you know to the pub in the evening and things like that. I was going what's going on oh this is really weird suddenly I thought Australians were friendly and you're all being a bit arsy what's going on anyway he says to me he says oh everyone knows <laughs> I said, well, wow. And so he explained. He says, well, mate, you're going to have to make your mind up. You can either be a lord or an actor. You can't be both. Sorry. <laughs> but that's what he said. And I went, oh, God, you know. And that, that, that little line stuck with me. You can either be a lord or an actor. You can't be both. And uh, so, you know, um, that's the point. So I, and I am. That's who I am. That's what defines me. I'm Tim Bentink, actor, needs the money. I'm not um bloke with... Rolls Royce and big country pound and lots of money. So it's about what defines you. And that's why, you know, when I was talking about people saying, oh, you're the Earl of Portland, as, as I say, as long as people are taking the piss, it's fine. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're an actor. I like the stuff you do. So that's good. Thank you, mate. <laughs> Stick with it. So so okay. what is it that, uh, that originally led you into the acting profession in the first place? I think probably a, a, my mum. I've got a recording of me and my mum. It's the only thing we've got. Um, of me and my mum and we're doing silly voices we're doing Pete and Dud and um, you know silly voices and accents and things like that and we used to do that and uh, and yeah and then she died when I when I was 13 and I just carried on doing that um, and we used to do it's when I was at school I used to put on comedy sketches um, and I've always loved doing accents. I think that's really where it came from. And then when I went to university, I'd, I'd done languages at school and then I went to university and I didn't know what to do. So I just did history of art because I thought I've, I figured I'm going to be in the arts. I'm not going to be a scientist. Um, uh, but I basically, I joined the drama society day one and I did plays for three years at university of East Anglia. We had a play every, every term. And at the end of that, I, I decided I loved it so much. I was then going to go to drama school. So I took a year off and went to America and drove um, tourists around America for a, uh, twice around America, um, had some adventures doing that, and then went to Bristol Orbit Theatre School for two years, um, at the end of which I won this thing called the Carlton Hobbs Award, which is for radio, um, and two people, one guy and one girl, win that every year, and that gives you an equity card and six months on the radio repertory company, so I started doing radio, and that got me into the whole voice side of things, so then I got a voice agent, so then I was doing radio commercials, TV commercials, um, radio plays, you know, lots and lots and lots of radio plays, and then from that, I auditioned for this thing called The Archers, which is, um, for those of you who don't know, it's the longest running um, drama series in the world um, ever. It's now running for 70 years on Radio 4, and it's a sort of British institution. And I play the part of David Archer, who for a while was the kind of head honcho there. Um, but uh, as the years go by, the, the young get more episodes. Than, you know, I remember being the young and uh, and everyone resenting the fact that us youngsters were getting more episodes than they were. And now that's happening to me. So you've got to take that one on the chin. But um, yeah, so that, and that brings us on to Big Finish. It was about that time doing so much um, voice, voice work. The Artist was my grandmother's favourite show that she listened to religiously. <laughs> um, 
yeah, all her life. Yeah, so Tim, you've been playing uh, David Archer for, I think, over 40 years now, isn't it? Yeah, 41, yeah. So well, has, has this way they film that we call the show changed much over those 40 years? Not, not much, no. I mean, apart from the, the, the COVID interruption, if it weren't for that, we, we record it pretty much exactly the same. Um, the, the main difference um, that happened was when it went from mono to stereo. Um, because with uh, mono, you could look directly at your fellow actor. So you had a microphone here, which was which you could speak into from this side and speak into from that side as well. So you had the microphone between the two of you. So then you have got the script, but you were looking up and you could see the other person's face. And there's an old adage that acting is the art of reacting. And you it's all about, you know, the, the reality of the the interchange that you have between the two of you. And that was easy, more easily done when it when you could look into the person's eyes. And with, then when stereo came along, then you had a stereo mic in front of you, and you're both standing on the same side of the microphone, one to the left, and one to the right. So it's the stereo field. So and and then the microphone is the other person's ear, but they're standing next to you. So if you turn to them and and talk to them like that, you'd be off mic. So you have to keep your head there talking to the microphone but keep your eyes looking out of there to be able to maintain eye contact which is sort of slightly artificial but we all got used to it you know get used to it um but apart from that um it's very very much the same as it was you know over the last 70 years obviously they you know the recording process is totally different because it used to be on disc and then it was on tape and now it's on on you know now it's digital um, but apart from that it's it's very similar now i think you've had one of the longest marriages on record, not in real life. I think a real life marriage is good. But in terms of on radio, because your your, your character has been married over thirty years. Yeah. Um, so, so what's the secret of successful marriage on television or radio? <laughs> well, the girl nearly had an affair with the milkman at one point. You know, and so <laughs> that was a bit of a blow. And uh, you know, David, my character, uh, has never really got over that. She didn't have an affair with him, but it was only because she rang home as she was about to go and do the deed. And I was telling her about how I'd made spaghetti bolognese for the kids. And as a result of that, she couldn't go through with it. So, you know, the headline is spag bowl saved my marriage, says David Archer. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and he's never really, uh, you know, the thing, I, the way I look at it is that David, he just loves her to bits. You know, he, he just absolutely adores her. And that was a, that was a, a kick, a kick between the legs. And he's never quite been certain about her. And he's terrified. He's terrified that it's going to happen again. That's the way I play it anyway. Um, but between that, um, they, they the, the, the opposites attract. You know, they're very different. I think that's that's a good thing. And they work together. They're both farmers, so they work together on the land. And they've got, you know, their children. And so their parents together. And that always keeps together. I mean, I've been married to Judy for, for 41 years. Um, what am I doing for 41 years? Yeah, same thing. Um, and there's, you know, that's a real marriage. And there's a, so there's different questions, the different answers to how does the real one survive? Um, uh, you know, it's, it come, comes down to love, mate. You know, that's what it comes <laughs> down to. That's old fashioned love, I think. So, are there any, any really outrageous plots that you remember from the archers that stand out? Um, 
Well, I mean, the one that people remember most is, I don't know, do you listen to it? Do you, do you, do you listen I, to it? I have, heard, I have heard a number of episodes. Okay. Well, there was a point where Nigel Pargeter, I'm up on the roof with him, and he slips and falls and dies. To his death, yep. Yeah, so that was poor old Graham Seed, who's a who's a mate of mine, and and he was, you know, like we all do, you kind of think you know, this might be a job for life, even if even if you know we only get paid per episode, and like for instance, I just haven't done any episodes for two months, so I've been paid for two months. Um, but you know, you do think maybe that you know it might be you might be playing this in, in, to to the grave. Um, so it came as a big shock to Graham. Um, and they, when he fell off the roof, they didn't, and I was there, you know, with him right next to him. Nigel! And he goes, <laughs> and he'd worked out kind of how high the building was and given the appropriate amount of scream, but they didn't think it was dramatic enough. So in post-production, they lengthened the scream. So it goes, <laughs> and then some guy worked out that if you do the, you know, meters per second per second acceleration. <laughs> <laughs> he, it would have been, you know, off the top of Westminster Cathedral. Um, <laughs> and also, I mean, I just, you know, I Josh people say, you know, I pushed him. <laughs> um, oh, you know, the 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 there've been there've been yes, there've been many. Um, the flood. There's been relationships. There's been stampeding um, cows. Well, stampeding cows, and also you know foot and mouth disease. Every, every disease you can possibly think of for the for the cattle and everything. Um, so yeah, you know every cloud has a silver lining. Whenever I hear of some new terrible outbreak of you know mastitis on the on the farms, you know we all we far, we pretend farmers kind of go, oh, that might be a few episodes then. You know, being, <laughs> so. Um, but no, it's, I mean, you know, I, it's a huge, huge privilege. And, and isn't it extraordinary how one little thing can change your life? You know, one day I walked in for an audition um, and I thought for years that I'd just been brilliant in the audition, but it was only about something like five years ago, I heard a recording of the guy who played David before me, a guy called Nigel Karivik. Um, and I was, and they said, oh, and this is David Archer. And I was listening going, oh, that's me. And I was thinking, hang on, wait, wait a minute that's actually not me but it sounds very like me and it was him and of course what I realized was the reason I got the job was because my voice sounded like the previous actor for no reasons about being a good actor or anything like that at all so that little tiny thing completely changed you know my whole life you know I've ended up writing an autobiography and you know and, um and I've been in this 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 thing that, that is icon yeah icon an icon an icon of england yeah exactly yeah. i'm i'm a huge fan of the hancock radio series was there an episode where he was in a radio play and that was that was sort of sending up the arches that episode yeah he did so he he was writing the episode and, be, and he was also in it um yeah. and it was like, oh look the whole the whole village has just fallen down that empty mine shaft <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> and he was the only one left that's right. Yeah. He, got written, he, he got written out and he didn't like it. So he wrote himself it. back in. He wrote yeah. himself back in and killed the rest of the village. And then there's the killing of Sister George as well, which is works on similar lines. So there are, you know, there's yeah, all those all those shenanigans. But they haven't, as far as I know, happened in, in real life yet. <laughs> yet. <laughs> Do you feel more natural uh in radio than other types of acting, or are you just a very adaptable actor? What is there a preference that you personally have? 
I'd have to say my favorite place to be is in front of the camera, really. Um, I've always done TV, always done films. Um, and I used to be, uh, I, I remember not getting how to do um, film acting because I'd done, I'd been at the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School and we were, you know, it was all Shakespeare and Chekhov and, you know, all big. And nobody told me that the camera doesn't lie. You can't do acting in front of a camera. And the moment you start acting, it's uh, nobody believes it. And I look at the stuff I did when I was younger, and I, I wince with shame. But I figured it out. Um, and because it's all, it, you know, the whole thing about screen acting is just thinking it. You know, all you've got to do is think it, and the camera will see. And you can't pretend to think it because the camera will see that you're pretending. It took me a long time to work that one out. So I've got better at it now. And I love it. I love I love working um, in in film and TV, partly because um, and again with theatre, I've sort of you know I, I used to do so much theatre, but I've got to the point now. Particularly, I'm just turned seventy, man. I mean, I can't believe it. It's like I'm being hit by a freight train. The idea of being seventy, oh god. But one of the things is I'd. The last play I did, it was a thing called Brexit, and I was the Prime Minister, and I walk on stage, and for an hour I'm on stage, and there's lots and lots and lots of lines. And it's, you know, you've got to remember it. And basically, my memory of that whole thing is all I was trying to do was not, was not dry, was trying to remember the lines and the, the actual performing part of it. I didn't get the, any real pleasure out of it because I was just going, oh, don't dry, don't dry. But my wife said when I was rehearsing it, she said, I've never seen you so happy for years and you haven't seen you so happy because I was creating the part. And that's where I've realized I love doing. I love the creation part of it, which is why I love doing radio, because you just do it, you know, once or twice or three times, which is why I love doing film, because you just do, you know, a few takes, you know, wide, close, close, blah, blah, blah. And then you move on to the next one. And each time I'm I'm creating, and I love doing improv as well. I do quite a lot of improv. Um, and that's what I really, I, I love doing. I, I'm a, you know, I, I love the creation and I don't really anymore um, get off on, on the repetition of doing it over and over and over again and being scared at the same time. <laughs> that's uh, something about Big Finish, I guess, is they do things a little bit, do they do things a little bit differently to other radio? What's the difference between what how Big Finish produce things and, and how The Archers is produced, for instance? Well, uh, uh, very good question. Uh, so the the arches is produced kind of in real time. So you're all in the room together, and you use the acoustic of the room. Um, and they have different acoustics. So you've got a dead room, which is acoustically dead. That's for outside, so you can shout and there's no bounce off the walls. Um, you have a live end, which is like for barns, where there's a bit of an echo that bounce coming off a big barn. And then you have a small snug place, which is kind of quite quiet, which is sort of for bedrooms and for, for the living room. And then you've got the kitchen, which has got all the kitchen equipment in it. And all of these sound effects happen live. So you do, in the kitchen, there's the kitchen, and you'll have a spot effects person who's making all the noises of the cooking and the fridge and the arger and all that kind of a thing. Um, and you you and it's three dimensional. You know you can walk away from the microphone and use the acoustic um, of the room to say I'm 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 over here and I'm I'm over here and I'm I'm coming in the door. So you, and it's stereo. So you know I'm coming in the door from the right. And blah blah blah. That's all live. The way that Big Finish do it is that we all have uh, individual microphones. Um, and one of the studios, there's literally this sort of like seven booths. There's like telephone boxes next to each other. You can see each other through the glass. But we, we, it's it's acoustically separated from all of them. So you've got seven different feeds coming into Pro Tools on seven different tracks or however many actors there are in the scene. 
Um, and you're just doing it there with a microphone, you know, like you are there with yours. You've got the microphone just there. And um, and then everything happens in post-production. That's the big finish way. So if you're going to be approaching the microphone, it will be done in post-production with the fader. So you'll start you off, you know, down and then they'll fade it up as you come close to the microphone. Um, the acoustic of wherever you are will be added in afterwards with a, you know, with a plug-in, with a you know, reverb or whatever it is. Um, and then the music gets put on and all the effects, you know, you imagine with the Space 1999 and Doctor Who and all those kind of things. I mean, the amount of effects that go on afterwards, we're just literally providing the words. And that becomes part of a technical exercise in creating a soundscape. Is, is there more of a sense of, of a company in, in something like the Arches where you're all standing around together? Or um, do you have that do you have that sense for Big Finish as well? Well, you do. It's but it's different. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I've been in the arches for forty years, and the people I've known, you know, for forty years. So in that sense, they are a second family, um, and so there's a real company feel. And when in the old days, when we were out, um, out of, at Pebble Mill, we were all in the same hotel, um, and there was a BBC bar. So you know, we'd all have lunch together, and so that you'd be, be all together. It's now a bit more disparate. Um, in that we were, you know, in the centre of Birmingham, we're in different hotels, and sometimes, you know, old mates will go out and have a, have a bite in the evening. Um, but in that sense of a company, it's um, it, it's closer. But big finish, um, you know, you're still in the green room together. Um, you know, you and some people you know, and some people you don't know. But actors are very, you know, they're easy, and we have fun, and you know, have a lot of laughs. And it's it, it you know, and if you're doing Doctor Who, everyone's going, I'm doing Doctor Who. <laughs> so there's a bit of that. Um, <laughs> um, and then COVID happened, and then we were doing it from home. So for like two years, um, everybody was doing it, you know, either in their bedroom or in their little homemade studio, all on their own microphone with the with the headphones on. Was it we doing arches that way too? We were for a bit, yeah. Yeah, for, for a bit. I mean, they 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 found it very difficult to be able to do it technically. So what they did for a while was to have monologues um, in the arches, which where they 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 went into your thinks. So it was like a kind of a an in, in, internal um, an internal thinks, which um, so you 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 revealed what all these characters that you've been listening to all your life were actually thinking, which was a kind of intrusion and weird and. It worked for a bit, but I think everybody agreed. It, you know, there was it, it. It couldn't carry on like that, obviously. And then they got up to the point technically where you could have um, two handers. But again, you know, we weren't out on the tractor, we weren't out in the fields, we weren't, you know, walking through the woods or anything. Every everything had to be talking heads because we were just literally in front of a microphone. So um, that's the way they cope with that. And it went down to four episodes a week rather than, or oh, I think maybe three, uh, as opposed to five. Um, and then when we came back in, still and it's still, you know, we still with the BBC with the artists, we still have to do COVID tests every time we come in, and we were separated. So instead of all being around one microphone, we were all on separate microphones, you know, maintaining our social distancing, which again was weird because you know you're meant to be having the intimacy of a conversation where you're talking to somebody who's right next to you, and in fact they're on the other side of the room. So it was a technical exercise in sounding as though you're next to them, but actually physically not being next to them. The COVID mucked up. You know so much stuff and uh, us fact yeah i have to say the fact that i got my studio at home um i you know i did i did a lot of work and i earned quite well um during covid i did six audio books from home um 
and uh, and you know big finish stuff and and other you know um video games and and all kinds of things so it was you know in, in some ways it was all right i mean we did we did us actors us voice actors were more insulated against um the 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 terror of covid than for instance theater actors who that was it you know they just didn't work and not only the actors but all the support you know everybody who works in the theater they were all out of work as well and and te- you know tv's sort of carried on i did a few i did a few tellies during it everybody with masks and covid tests and you know all of that but yeah been a lot was, slower mate yeah really <laughs> so so you have done about at least 50 productions for for big finish across heaps and heaps of different ranges so not just doctor who you've done blake's i think you've done just about everything blake seven torchwood yeah. Uh, yeah. space 1999 yeah. um you've done everything what Avengers. what what is it that keeps you going back is it the, is it just the money <laughs> no the one thing which i think even they will tell you is you don't do you don't do big finish productions for the money you do do it for for the love and um and I love, I do love the guys, and I love the productions, you know. And it's, you know, one of the sadnesses about being in the Archers was that they kind of don't. The BBC sort of don't use Archers actors for their dramas anymore. So I was used to do loads and loads and loads of radio plays, and that all stopped when I got the Archers, and I missed that. So Big Finish is made up for that in, you know, in a lot of ways. And also, you know, I get to play character parts. You know, the nature of the of, of acting is that. It's you know I do a lot of um, kind of short films and student films in which I get to play different people with different voices and different accents and different classes and things like that. But um, you know, for, I don't know if you know, I'm uh, Tommy Flowers in Torchwood. You know, um, it, it's, so it is it, basically I'm just I'm being my mum. You know, and my, I had my mum died, but I had these aunties who you, who were very very camp. It was like being with Alan Bennett, and they call me little Timmy. Hello, Timmy. So I channeled her, channeled me aunties for, for Tommy Flowers, and I love playing Tommy. And then I'm Commissioner Simmons in uh, Space 1999, who's complete twat. Um, but, um, you, you know, it's, it's, it's that thing. It's like, it's like who I was on that Australian commercial, you know, I was the one, because you always know every company, there's always one. And if you don't know who the one is, it's you. <laughs> And that's Commissioner Simmons. He's the one. Oh, Christ, here comes it's Commissioner. I found his first name's Gerald. He's Gerald Simmons. Um, of course it is. Yeah. yeah, it would be. It's interesting you mentioned, uh, was it the play you did called Brexit? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because Space 1999, not the one that was just, just been released this month, but uh, the one from last year, which you would have recorded quite a while ago, at least mm. probably 18 months, two years ago, was, was a Brexit analogy. So that was a... A really interesting one. Do you recall that? It's only a couple of days' work, but um, but yeah, it was it was really good. And it, I think, it was in the television series that Simmons died, wasn't it? Yeah, Simmons died. But they in kept the t- you going for the audios. Yeah, I was so flattered. They said because yeah, David Richardson said to me, he said, you know, we, you know, Commissioner Simmons is meant to be dead by now, but he said we love you know your um, the part so much. Um, we've decided to you know. To let, to let you live, to keep you on, so he, he he stays on. Yeah, there was, but I know the one that's just come out because I was listening to it in the in the car, um, where where the, in this parallel world where Simmons becomes the um, governor, governor, governor Simmons, yeah, yeah, had these 
pages and pages of speech and dialogue of being of being in charge of the whole thing. When I first got the script, I didn't realize it was a parallel world. I thought, my God, what's happening here? I'm suddenly, I'm in charge. And then I, you know, get, he gets his come up and says, as he should do. Um, yes, you're right. There was a kind of a Brexity one. I'm trying like mad now to, to remember what that one was called or or how it worked. But it, it was a while ago. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, the, you... you you know, it's, you call last minute and you, you just provide your lines and it's only afterwards that you, you find out what the whole thing was all about when you listen to it. And then they give, but David gives you interviews and you have to do interviews afterwards and everything. And, and uh, you know, sometimes I have read it all and I know all about it, but sometimes it's all a bit last minute and I have to I have to busk the interviews slightly. He knows that, so I'm not telling stories out of school. <laughs> do you tend to always listen to your stories after you've done them? Oh, absolutely. I've got the I'm, I'm, I'm on the bookshelf up here. I've got the CDs of everything of everything I've ever done for Big Finish because the one thing you get is you get sent the CD, and it's great for the car. You know, it's lovely because we go long journeys in the car, whacking one of these. It's perfect, absolutely perfect. <laughs> now I notice behind you you've got some instruments. So not only do you do voice voice acting, you do television, theatre, movies. Um, you do music as well. Tell us about your interest in music. Well, I've always I've, I've always played the guitar, um, and if you go to my website, there's all the you know all the recordings I've I've, I've done over the years. It's timbentink.com, um, and I have always basically my the thing that motivated me was to um, which is the whole my entire life is to try and find a sideline to acting. Um, that will continue to, you know, give me an income once the acting starts to slow down, um, which I still haven't found, unfortunately. But I was, <laughs> what I wanted to do is to get the Christmas hit. So I was always writing comedy songs, thinking this is going to be the big Christmas hit and it's going to make me huge amounts of money, like like that film um, about a boy, where um, um, what's his name is living on on the on his, uh, his his father had written a Christmas hit and he was just living on that huge. Um, um, Hugh thing. Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant, thank you. Um, that's what I wanted to be. The, the guy, the guy who had royalties for the rest of his life, and I could put my feet up and not work from one song. That was the plan. So I wrote lots of those. So there's all these uh, all these comedy hits. Um that, well comedy. I did see that song today that you wrote uh for the benefit of Jeremy Clarkson. I thought that was pretty Oh yeah. That, with the the film of it. Yeah, yeah, I watched yeah. that. It was a good yeah, video. It's a great video. This guy heard it, and I put it up on the website, and he said, he said, do you want to make a, a film of it? I went, yeah, sure. So I found myself in this freezing cold village hall in Kent for a day with a green screen, and he shot this whole thing, just did playback to me, and I played along to it. And he turns up with this extraordinary film. Still makes me laugh. It's fun. I had a dream last night. They tried to ban my car. I want to do things right But now they've gone too far I want to save the planet and I'm doing what I can It's just they've got to let me drive my car My TV's off at night I've got solar power I try to do things right Be greener than you are I really try to fly, but I always need to drive my car. I recycle and I sometimes use the bicycle, but please let me drive my car. 
And Clarkson has seen it, apparently, and approves. <laughs> and has gone green as a result. And has gone green as a result, yeah. Well, who, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> What's in the future for you? What's to come? Um, well, uh, uh, lots of things, but... Um, and the fact I've got eight things um, coming up, which I'm not allowed to tell you about because I've signed NDAs about them all, but there's um, eight eight tellies that are, are coming up. Um, I've had a bit of disappointment on two of them where I filmed it and uh, it's all all been done and, and, and does these nice scenes for the for the showreel. And then they decided to drop the scene. Um, so that was a bit of a blow, but there's a bit more coming up. And I've got thing that I'm doing next week, which is two days on, again, a thing that I'm not allowed to tell you about but I'm very chuffed about it's literally, it's only two days, but um, it's a biggie. So that's quite fun. Um, and uh, we're going on holiday um, in September for a bit. <laughs> and uh, um, and the archers, hopefully, even though it's a bit of a fallow period at the moment, it will, will come back. So, you know, life goes on really. It's, um, it's the same old, same old. And every now and again, the agent rings says, will you do a self tape? And you go off and you do a self tape and, um, and a, you know, maybe sort of 50% of those um, I get. And they're nice, you know, nice parts. And uh, and it's the variety, you know, it's, that's the thing that I've I've had all my life as an actor is that it's never the same thing twice. And that's the thing I love about it. And so you have the insecurity of it where you, you know, you're not, not earning like this at the moment. I've got absolutely nothing on. Uh, end of last year, I mean, I was trying to juggle the work, trying to get it fitted all in. Um, so you never know, you know, you never know. My my father, when when I decided to be an actor, he said, I think you're very brave being a freelance. This was a man who'd just been through the war, you know, shot twice and taken prisoner by the Germans. And he was telling me I was brave. I didn't know what on earth he was talking about. And it's only now that I go, yeah, it was a very stupid decision. <laughs> I should have had a sensible job. I was doing computer programming um, in, in the 90s. I, was got, got, I had a, at one point I had the highest most downloaded piece of shareware on on this new thing called the internet on CompuServe. And of course I should have become a software developer and I'd now be in multimillionaire, but you know, Muggins here decides, you know, no, 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 I want to be a, want to be an actor. <laughs> Idiot. You've got to do what you're passionate about. You got it. Yeah, you have, you know, yeah, you have. I, I would have, I would have, you know, but on, you know, it's, the grass is always greener, isn't it? You know, it would be nice to be very, very rich. I, I, that's the bit I'm missing. <laughs> not, not in radio. That's not going to happen. Not going to happen. <laughs> not going to happen. Not working for big finish. Need to get a, need to get a Marvel film. You telling me? Absolutely. That's what I need. Yeah, play a rat or something or a tiger. <laughs> well, if anyone's listening to us now and hasn't seen your show rule, I would I would recommend anyone go to your website, timbentic.com, and have a look at your show rule because uh, you are a very, very versatile actor. I can see why you keep coming back to Big Finish and long may it continue. That's all I can say. Oh, thanks, mate. That's, I appreciate it. Thank you very much indeed. I, I, I love doing it. <laughs> Thank you very much for, uh, for having a chat with us. Really appreciate it. My great pleasure. Thank you. Bad news, Torchwood are going to be destroyed. From Big Finish Productions, Torchwood One, Nightmares. My guest tonight is someone I've wanted on this show for a long, long time. And now we've got her cornered. She's trapped. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, let's make her feel warm and welcome. It's Yvonne Hartman. Something is wrong with her. The time for sneaking about is over. 
we're torchwood. We dive in, get our hands dirty, do what needs to be done, and to hell with the consequences. Yanto Jones, I'm going to need you to come with us. Eh? What's this about? We have orders to detain you. Me? For what? Betraying Torchwood. If you're watching this tape, you have no doubt noticed something is amiss. You need to trust me. It's the only way you'll survive. The only way we will survive. Ianto, how are you, Marvellous? Listen, I've just woken up in a strange hotel room. Oh. I don't know where I am, but I'm lying next to someone. Mm. He's dead. Ianto, I think I may have murdered the heir to the throne. All of Torture Who Matters is coming here to die. And I know who did this. Big Finish for the Love of Stories. It's a goodbye from me, Mary, and a goodbye. Well, that was a lovely chat with Tim, one of the regulars for Big Finish, and it was lovely to hear some of his stories, Philip. It was. Yeah, uh, lots of stories he could have kept going for a long time, I know. <laughs> Absolutely. He's been in, in radio in particular for such a long time. Quite legendary, the Archers. You, you, I didn't realise your grandmother was a fan. Oh, and I've got lots of family who, yeah, my English relatives who are, everyone, always listen to the Archers. And my grandmother, you talk about growing up, you know, with the radio on, listening to the Archers every night. Yeah. After dinner. Yep. Yep. Very good. Well, that only leaves us to recommend a couple of things. And what I'd like to, actually, no, I just glanced at the list by my side and it tells me that Philip it's your turn to go first my turn. let me okay let me go first uh, I'm going to recommend um, something that's actually I'm just listening to and I haven't listened to the last episode yet but the first three are so worthwhile that even if the last episode's a total dud which I'm sure it's not uh, it's worth getting uh, so I'm listening to the war master solitary confinement at the moment good cover it's a great cover I mean it's actually it's an amazing cover uh, Derek Jacoby is just always has been a major uh, I've loved him. Like I knew Derek Jacoby long before he was on Doctor Who. I know him from all sorts of movies. He's been in TV shows. I've always been a huge fan. I've seen him live on stage. And so his voice, and to me, he was just such an amazing master for the two or three minutes we had him as the master in Utopia. He was breathtaking. And one of my great regrets is the fact that we didn't have him long on TV because he was just so sinister and so evil from being so sweet and so kind. But Big Finish is making up for it with their box sets. And this solitary confinement box sets does not disappoint in any way. It's a, it's a bizarre situation where you really feel feel for this master. You like him, but then you hate him as well. And he just does things and just turns around. Um, I've listened to the stories by James Goss, Tim Foley, and Alfie Shaw, and the three of them are spectacular, but so different. Um, Alfie Shaw, boy, I'm enjoying his stuff. He, he's, it, it's, it's the strangest one in some ways because the master's just a voice in a IA system, but it's really looking at the whole date of IA. But Jacob, Jacob Dudman is playing the main Wouldn't character. Wouldn't be AI, would it? AI. Is it what did I say? AA? IA. IA. AI. That's okay. We know what I you mean, Philip. It's all right. <laughs> not AA, uh, not either. Yeah. <laughs> yes, sorry, AI. So it's basically, basically like a Google box is the character, but with the master's voice. 
So it doesn't actually do, so Jerry Jacoby doesn't do much. Jacob Dunban is the star of that episode. What an amazing young actor he is because he just carries it. Anyhow, it's scary, it's chilling, it's funny at times. It takes you to places you don't expect to be taken. And I can't wait for the last episode because there's been a running theme beginning and end of every episode, which is the master in this mental asylum. The last episode, I'm sure, is going to bring things to a head with that because it's just been lightly touched. Mainly it's been the stories in between as he tells stories to a nurse. But wow, just, yeah. Like, one of the best things I've listened to for a long time and I'm just in... in... Is, this, is this Scott Hancock's last one? I think it might be. Because, yeah, now he's off with Doctor Who. I suspect this may be his last one. Um, but I don't know. Who knows what they've got in the can still? Because, you know, they've, they're, yeah. <laughs> they've got they lots of things in the can. <laughs> uh, I, I haven't heard it announced that it is his last one. I've not, not seen anything said that it is. So I, I don't know. Um, but, yeah, yeah just it's, James Goss always writes. Tim Foley's one is just brilliant. And as I said, Alfie Shaw's. And I'm really looking forward to the last one. I just haven't got to it yet. So that's my recommendation. If you haven't got it yet, it's, it really is a box that's worth getting. I think you'll enjoy it. What about you, Dwayne? What have you been listening to? Very good. Um, I am going to recommend an album because listening to Rani Takes on the World, the box set, The Last Story, reminded me of this album because I don't know if you recall, I can't even remember the name of the story off the top of my head. Uh, I think it's called The Witching Tree. That's right. Do you remember that one? The Witching Tree? Yep. Um. There is, there is an an alien in that that reads out these seemingly random numbers and names like zero, zero, nine, six, and a couple of other funny words, and you find out at the end what all that's about. But instantly, I thought the writer, which was Lizzie, Lizzie Hopley, another awesome writer who does lots and lots of good stuff, might have been thinking about what was in this album that I'm going to recommend. And of course, it's the same old band that I keep going back to. It's Porcupine Tree, an album from 1997, I think it is, or 98. It's called Stupid Dream, but there's a song on there called Even Less, which at the end of the song, it features someone reading those numbers. And I was always fascinated by that. And what those numbers are on the album is that it's a repeating pattern of numbers um, that is taken from the recording of a shortwave number station. Now, I'm reading this off some research that I did. It's understood that these stations are used by intelligence agencies to transmit coded messages to overseas operatives, although no government agency has ever acknowledged the existence of these stations or what their actual purpose might be. They're virtually impossible to decode without the key, since the message and its key are generated at random. So that's... that. Just that little aspect that I don't even, I was waiting for the extras for Lizzie to mention something about it because it's exactly the same as what's on the album. So based on a, on a real thing. Um, and she didn't mention it. So I'd be curious to know whether Lizzie was inspired by that particular phenomenon that no one's been able to decode because intelligent agencies don't deny their existence. Well, we should ask I think we should, Philip. Um, so there's that, but what what else um, prompted me to to start watching something? There was something I can't remember what it was, but something we were talking about got me started on a rewatch of Twin Peaks, which is one of my favourite television shows outside of Doctor Who. I think it's one of the most interesting, bizarre, strange bizarre shows that there ever is, right is. and it is it is the music 
uh, the theme tune of Twin Peaks that is such an earworm for me. I can just listen to that theme music over and over again. I love it. I love watching the episodes because I, when I get to the end of one, I know that the, the theme tune for Twin Peaks is coming on uh, at, at the start of the next one. So, yeah, I've been doing a little rewatch of Twin Peaks as well. So uh, if anyone hasn't seen it, seek it out because at least the, the 90s series, I didn't quite get into the, the recent dead, one. wrapped in plastic. Yeah, you had to do it, didn't you? I had to do it. <laughs> and I, I, mean, I, I mean, I've got the soundtrack because I, I love that soundtrack. Great. What's his name? Angelo Badlamenti or Baglamenti? I can't remember what Something, his name. Uh, Italian. Italian. Yes. The Italians are great composers, aren't they? So uh, that uh, Stupid Dream by Porcupine Tree, that's my recommendation for this episode. And uh, I thank you very much for your company, Philip. As always, very, very, very colourful background you've got going there. Well, it's vivid at the moment in Sydney, so I'm just uh, appreciating the beauty of my city. If you can see it at the moment, you you can see this. I'm appreciating the beauty of my state. Yeah, it sums up, doesn't it? You're you're the nature person, I'm the city person. That's it. That is it. All right. Until next time, Philip, thank you very much, and we'll catch you you all later. Bye, everyone. This has been the Sirens of Audio episode 159, The Tassie Laddie, with our guest, Tim Bentink, and your hosts, Philip Edney and Dwayne Bunny. Original theme composed by Joe Kramer. Our website is sirensofaudio.com. Comment below to let us know what you thought of the episode or contact us via email at sirensofaudio at gmail.com or via any one of our socials. Thanks for listening, audiophiles. We'll hear you next time. 